0: You can turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter seven, and the thirty-first ber- verse. You know that uh, life together thing is just something we're trying to try out, so that you can open up parts of your life that you're already doing already to to people that that might be here and. Hopefully that'll be a habit, not just with friends here at church, but friends outside of, of churches. Um, we want that to be a habit for all of us, that our lives would be uh, understood to be a shared thing, not just something that's for me to hoard and, and to control. Sometimes you need private things, and that's fine. But we also want to have outflows in our life and, and places at our table. Where we're inviting others to come and, and be a part. Um, That needs to be a habit for us uh, if we're going to continue to to strive to be a people who are are moving to plant outside of us, which is what we want to do. And some of you are really naturally gifted at thinking that way, uh, which is great. And some of you are saying, I wish I was better at that, uh, which is also great. Um, The great thing about following Jesus is that he doesn't just say, well, you've got to have this all figured out by yourself immediately. It's a life learned together with others and with him. And if you want to be a part of that effort to be a planting people, that we be a multiplying church, I'd love to talk to you personally. You can come up to me. You can email me at anthony at valleyhope.church. Uh, and I'm not going to make this announcement anymore. <laughs> I, was going to, I said I would announce it for four times. I was going to see who hit it, see what fish rose to the bait and then uh, you'll hear from us again down the road. So the door is closing, not really, but it, it is, but it's not. Uh, rush in and talk to me uh, if that's interesting to you. All right, Mark chapter 7, verse 31. You can read off the screen. You can just listen or read in your own Bible. Uh, if you're reading off your phone, I would just encourage you to shut it off. After you're done doing that, you won't need that for a little bit. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his finger into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. Some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the crowd, before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about four thousand people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of, Dal- of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. They had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand, or are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And you pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask you to help us understand. We ask you to help us be the kind of disciples that are close to you, that can see and can hear what is before us. We ask that you'd help us to respond to you in faith. Help me, Father, to speak with these words not in opposition to them. God, our hearts are in need of the feeding that you give in your word. Let us both be hungry and filled. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Jesus is, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, been, at this point, if you've been with us, zigzagging across the lake. He seems to be around the Sea of Galilee for a while now. And uh, things are about to change geographically. They're going to turn narratively in the, in the Gospel of Mark. But he has one more exchange around this region of the Sea of Galilee. And it's important to see that he's still in Gentile portions of uh, Palestine before he gets back on the lake. We finished last week with the story of the Syrophoenician woman who had asked Jesus to heal her demon-oppressed child. And Jesus does it after challenging her with some of the most offensive words in the gospel. And he's still in this region of the Gentiles when he now is faced with this man who is deaf and mute. He's hearing impaired, and because of the nature of his hearing impairment, he, he can't speak, perhaps at all, definitely not clearly. And so... Probably out of concern as a village for this community, they push this man forward and insist on Jesus healing him. And he does it in, I don't know, one of the grosser ways that he does it. Jesus likes to use spit. Sometimes he makes mud out of it and puts it on blind people's eyes. But this time, it seems like maybe he spits on his finger and shoves it in his mouth and which is interesting for us you know we think of this man as the deaf man he does put his fingers you know in his ears and then and in his mouth like that and says be opened and and it happens and the language that mark uses here is almost certainly in reference to a prophecy from the book of isaiah And I'm just going to read to you from Isaiah 35, just a couple verses. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And Mark kind of borrows this language of the mute man's mouth being untangled. It is the the kind of mental image as if his tongue is literally a knot. And Jesus, by his touch, his spit, he makes him able to speak and to hear. And this is all happening in Gentile territory. And that, that matters because Jesus is, is touching what is unclean in, in just about as intimate a way as possible. He's exchanging spit with an a unclean Gentile man. And then, then he does the next thing in Gentile territory. So we've, it's not that long ago in the gospel of Mark that he's fed the 5,000. So you might be sitting here saying, didn't we already do this? Why, why is this here again? And uh, some people have said like, maybe this is a mistake. Like, I don't know, Mark forgot that he just wrote this a couple pages before or uh, somebody kind of slipped a new page in there to really make sure. But it it seems pretty clear Mark intentionally tells these two different events. Jesus previously feeds the 5,000. But he does something slightly different in a different place. So this time, the emphasis is not just that there's 4,000 men. It's 4,000 people. It's a smaller crowd in this Gentile region. And Jesus is the one who initiates the fact that these people have no food. And he says, we need to feed these people. And again, the disciples do not see how they are supposed to feed these people. Now, you may be saying, look, we just read this story. We This was like a page and a half ago. How are you not immediately saying, Jesus, are you going to do the thing again? But... To be fair, we don't know how much time has passed between the turning of our pages, and it's pretty crazy the first time. It's not like Jesus regularly, three meals a day, is like, whoop, you know, bread. They're regularly just acquiring and eating bread like normal people do. And so the question is pretty natural and fair. And all of this is happening in Gentile territory. It's happening in the region of Sidon. That Jesus sits the people down. He takes seven, seven loaves of bread. He takes a few small fish. And everybody gets filled. There's, again, more than enough for the people. And Mark wants you to m- make sure to know that there are a certain number of baskets that are collected in the leftovers. Before, in the feeding of the 5,000, there was 12 baskets. In the feeding of the 4,000, there are seven baskets. And you're supposed to log that in your memory Because Jesus expected his disciples to log that in his memory. The the emphasis is not on the fact that Jesus has shown that he can do this again. We shouldn't be that surprised at this point that he's able to do this. It is who he does it with. It is not that, that Jesus has multiplied what seems unmultipliable. It's that he has multiplied this and given to the Gentiles in a way similar to that he'd also given to Israel. And the Pharisees come to him. The Pharisees demand from him a sign. And Mark is clear to show you that they are doing it as a test. And in the story of Israel, the people of Israel would test God. They, They would not just be in the position of asking provision... But the Old Testament would say that they would test God in the wilderness and beyond and show His own power and glory again, even if, for example, they had just been rescued from Egypt. They would test God. And here the Pharisees are initiating a similar kind of test, demanding this particular kind of sign that Jesus would prove His own authority. And power, again, that Jesus would self-identify through the giving of signs. And it can't be that giving a sign, giving a miracle is the problem. That itself is not the issue because Jesus has done that several times. And people are constantly pushing into Jesus and asking him to do miracles. And Jesus often does. So the problem is not miracles itself. It is the spirit in which the Pharisees continue to demand of him that he do this thing on their terms to prove to them again, prove it to me, that you are who you say you are. And Jesus refuses. He says, I will not give this generation a sign. And Jesus then in the boat on their next hop across the lake He warns his disciples, don't be like the Pharisees, and don't be like Herod, which is just kind of a weird left turn. Like, where has Herod been in this story at all? But the the only other time that Mark really talks about Herod is the Herod who is doing what he's done with John the Baptist, who is seeking to, to control and then ultimately to murder. Baptist for his own gain, his own control, and he says, don't let the leaven of the, Pharise- the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod into your own life have nothing to do with it. And the disciples are confused because they're like, we're talking about yeast, there's no bread anywhere. They, they missed the point so extravagantly that Jesus here offers some of his harshest words of critique to his disciples. Like, are you kidding me? This is not about the bread. But speaking of bread, do you remember when I fed the 5,000, how many baskets there were? 12. Do you remember how many baskets there were at the 4,000? Seven. Don't you get it? Do you get it? Now, be honest. Because at this point when you're reading the Gospel of Mark, if you're like me, you read the Gospel of Mark at this point and you say, well, shoot, I'm glad I wasn't in that boat because I have no idea what he's talking about. I'm looking at the disciples with a good bit of compassion and saying, Guys, I feel for you here. I mean, missing the bread thing, that was pretty bad. But what do these baskets mean? I don't know. It's it's pretty, pretty easy to miss what is going on here. But Jesus is saying it's vital that you pay attention. It has something to do with this leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. It's vital that you understand and see what these signs are showing you so that you don't end up like the Pharisees and like Herod. Jesus is feeding both Israel and the Gentiles everything that they need. There are 12 tribes in Israel and there are 12 baskets. In the, in the mind of many Israelites, the number 7 and 70 gets associated with the Gentiles for a variety of reasons. It also has these connotations of perfection. And probably both of those symbols and ideas are being grasped at one time. And so what they are being shown is that in Jesus, there is the fullness of all of Israel and the Gentiles. That the God of Israel, like prophesied in Isaiah 35, has come. And in, in the language that Mark uses to tell the story of the feeding of the 4,000. He intentionally, as a Christian writer of of the story of Jesus, shifts the language from the feeding of the 5,000. And before he uses the words that Jesus speaks as a word of of Jewish blessing, but in the feeding of the 4,000, the words that Mark uses to describe it are much closer to the language of Christian communion. Jesus gives eucharizo, giving thanks which is the language the church uses to describe the Eucharist. We're at the table. Both Jew and Gentile are fed together. And Mark is presenting to us, Jesus is presenting to us, this important truth. The God of Israel has arrived on the scene and now the blessings of his covenant provision, of his feeding of his sheep, is not just for the people of Israel. It is for the nations as well. Now, that should mean something to you because I would say pretty confidently the vast majority of people in this room are Gentiles. And Jesus is saying this for your benefit. The problem is that we have lived in Gentile land for the entirety of our life, for generations and generations and generations, that for us, that news just doesn't quite hit our ears as a very big deal. It doesn't seem like this is that noteworthy that we would say this thing, that the God of Israel would seat both Jews and Gentiles at the table and are fed from the same food at the same time. But for the early church, it's a massive deal. And for the understanding of what God is doing in the world, it takes hundreds of years for the church to really wrap their minds around what this actually means. You can see it still being worked out across the New Testament. It is one of the major conflicts of the New Testament. You can read the book of Galatians and see that that Peter himself is still struggling to understand the fullness of what all this means because Paul has a conflict with him in public, shouting one another down about what the nature of this thing actually means. And for you, it can just seem like this is taken for granted. Of course. God wants everybody at the table. This is no big deal. But it's a massive deal. It is actually really, really important that you understand the enormity of what Jesus has done. That in Jesus, in what Christ has done, he has set the table for the nations. So that the God of Israel is revealed to be not just the God of Israel, but the God of the whole world. So the God of Abraham, who says to Abraham that he wants to bless all the peoples of the world, is in fact not just the God of Abraham, but the God of all who would trust in the God of Abraham. And so the door is flung open to anybody and everybody, so that as Paul writes later in the book of Galatians, now in Jesus there is no more Jew and Gentile. There is no more slave and free, male and female. Every way, class, race, gender, that people try to create hierarchies and differentiation in Jesus, all of those things are wiped clean. The slate is clean. The footing is even. Everybody in Christ comes to receive the fullness of all that God has for people. And you may take for granted... The fact that, of course, God would want me. (laughs) Look at me. I mean, I'm pretty great. What would be so bad about me? That my Gentileness, why why would that exclude me? But it is not just your Gentileness that God overcomes. It is everything that stands against you. It is everything. That would push you from the table. It is every black mark that you could put in your ledger against you. You may not feel the weight of what it means that you were far off as one of the nations just because of the place that you were born, but you probably feel it in other ways. You probably feel it in the choices that you've made the ways that you have failed, the ways that you have been unclean that range wider than your dietary choices and the ways that you wear mixed fibers in your clothes, breaking the ritual cleanliness of the law. You have a record that you would come to believe would stand to push you away from the table when Jesus offers you, a Gentile, a sinner, an unclean one, the fullness of what he has offered to Israel, Jesus is not ignorant of what you have against you. It is simply that he is for you that changes everything. And the danger as you understand that, as you see that, is that you would be like the Pharisees and that your heart would be hard. And the danger here, Jesus says, extends not just to Pharisees, but to his disciples. You see, Jesus, if you heard it, says, has your own heart grown hard? And we know that their heart actually can grow hard because it is one of them that will betray Jesus. Judas is in the boat. Judas is among their number. So this is not an empty or an idle warning that Jesus is offering. It is a real and live warning. Do not let your heart grow hard. To be like the Pharisees, to be like Herod, would seek to control and suppress. And it happens easily. The Pharisees, their request of Jesus, in some ways, sounds like the request that Jesus has been extended by hundreds, thousands of people thus far. Would you do this for me? But the spirit that lies underneath the question is the difference. And the Pharisee would say to Jesus, prove it to me. That question is not so far from your lips or from mine. Sometimes that request, that challenge is thrown out of a place of real pain. I feel Forgotten, I feel neglected, I feel unseen. Prove it to me that you actually see me. And that, that question, that challenge is dangerous if you do not understand that Jesus is actually in front of you. If all you're ever looking from God is what he will do for you, and you cannot see what he has done in front of you. You are in the position to be in a place where you are testing God and when your heart grows hard. This is an especially important, and pressing warning for people inside this room. People who come to church, who have been church people for a long time. People who have grown used to Jesus being in the boat with them. Who have been around Jesus, who have seen Jesus do things, and the question that creeps in, prove it to me. The danger is that you can be around Jesus, you can see the things that he is doing, and you don't actually recognize who he is. Your heart grows hard. I, I'm not here today to find the especially vulnerable. People in the room who are entirely scrupulous, who are just waiting to hear the next reason for them to go off in a room and to litigate and evaluate their feelings. How much have I doubted or not doubted? That is not who Jesus is talking to here. Jesus is not talking to people who are concerned that they are not following close enough. Jesus is talking to people who don't care to follow him. And if that is you, that is who this warning is for. If you have grown accustomed to, if you've grown used to the language of Jesus, the description of what Jesus is doing, what Jesus has done, but you have no inclination to recognize that he is who he says he is, then he says, let that little bit of yeast that will grow to fill up the loaf of your heart, you better pull that leaven out because that hardness of heart is a problem. And we are left then with this note of warning for the disciples. That you better pay attention to what is going on. And you better not put yourself in a position where you are standing over God in judgment. Where you are wiping any evidence of what he has already done and saying, prove it to me again. And you are missing who is standing there before you. Now, what you need to understand is the story of these disciples is not over. Jesus is not saying, don't be like them. Now, get out of here. I'm tired of you. I'm done with you. Jesus knows that he's in the boat with disciples who are struggling to see and to understand. We're going to see very clearly next week what that looks like to struggle to see and to understand, to grow into seeing and to understanding. But you have to recognize and remember that Jesus is not done with these people. He's not throwing them out. He is not over with them. The story progresses. And Jesus will do something to be for them a sign that the Pharisees reject and the disciples will see. And that thing is what changes this for them. It is what yanks out the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod from their own heart. It is the thing that rescues them from their own hardness of heart. The thing that they cannot see right now and they cannot see through to help them and understand what is right before them is the primary sign that Jesus will perform so that they will understand who he really is and what it is he has come to do. The thing that Jesus will offer to the world as a sign is his crucifixion. The sign that is being built to, the sign that this generation of Pharisees will not receive because it is not the kind of glorious sign that they expect. It is the crucifixion of Jesus. And the thing that will help the disciples look backwards and be able to tell this story and put all their cards on the table, it is the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ. It is when when they see that gaping, empty hole in the earth, that they will be able to see that their eyes and their mouth and their ears have been opened. That the Jesus who has provided for them at the table of the wilderness, the 5,000 and the 4,000, he will set the table for them with his own body and blood. So that they themselves will receive his own life, his own body in their mouths as well. And they will be finally able to move from this place of hard-heartedness and dullness of understanding and the thing that is clouding their vision. It will be, it'll be chased away by the clarity offered and the cross and the empty tomb. And you have to keep that ending in mind in this moment when you are being put the warning to you. Do not Accept the leaven of the Pharisees. Do not grow hard in heart because you also now live on the other side of the cross. You have to hear that while you hear this warning. You now have before you the ultimate prove it of God. There is no greater sign that Jesus is going to do for you. You need to hear me and say, hear me say this and understand. The thing that you have put on the list. If you really loved me, if you really cared, you would do this. There is no greater sign that Jesus will do for you than what he did on the cross and climbing out of the tomb. And that may bring you grief. But you need to look at your grief. Is that thing? that you would demand as a it of God, does that thing weigh more to you than what the Son of God has done for you? And if you see this morning that that is true, the Jesus that is in the Gospels is offering to you this same warning. There is nothing that God can do for you that is greater than what he has done for you. And anything that you're asking of him may be perfectly good. It really might. The giving of what you cannot gain, the healing of what has been broken, those might all be wonderful and and good things but you will not be able to trust him with that if you forget, if your heart grows hard and cold and the cross in an empty tomb loses its luster for you. Because the crucified and resurrected Jesus is the God who would hold nothing back from you who loves you and has demonstrated his own love for you, that even while you still hated him, he died for you. That though he has all power, he counted equality with God as nothing to be clung to, but emptied himself even to the point of death to serve you. That the power of death and hell itself was defeated for you because He loves you. He has not done a small thing for you. He has not done a thing on a list of things you have to believe. But now, what you really need is this other thing. The defining moment of human history is the crucifixion and resurrection of the Son of God for you on your behalf because He loves you and He will never change who He is. He is still that King. He is still that God. Do not be so deceived to think that the thing that you want God to do is more important than the thing that God has done for you and everything that you long for him to do is meant to be seen in the shadow of his cross because that is the great stamp of his love for you in history and place and geography and in your own life that is a permanent etching of God's own character and power and love for you so all of the things, all the signs that you long for, they don't mean nothing to him, but they also ought not mean everything to you. Jesus is the one with enough for all people, and he has enough for you. If you are here today and you are realizing and recognizing within yourself that you, like the Pharisees, Have been creating a bargaining list with God. Hear Jesus' warning to you and respond. Today, don't harden your heart. Do not harden your heart anymore. God has proven himself to you. Would you trust him? Would you repent and believe? and if you are here today, and you have never seen what it is that God has done for you, today is the day. The Son of God is before you, presented in an empty cross, in an empty tomb, so that you would know the greatness of His love to you. Today, if you hear His voice, Do not harden your heart, but instead, believe. (coughs) I'm going to pray for us. And if you are here today, anywhere along that spectrum, the antidote, the prescription is still the same. To turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And Jesus will offer kingdom to you yet again today. So as we pray today, would you turn your eyes upon Jesus? Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel of Jesus, the good news that the kingdom of God has arrived, the good news that you would open the ears (coughs) and the mouths of your people And put in them your praise. Father, I thank you that in you is everything that we need that our bellies might be filled. And Father, I pray for those who have found themselves in the position of the Pharisees and of hard hearted disciples all they can see is what you have not done for them and have forgotten what you have done. And Father, I pray that you would help them to see again the glories of the cross and the tomb. And God, I pray for those who have never seen that, who have just known of the crucifixion of Jesus as a thing that Christians believe and instead of a thing that has happened to them For them. And Father, I pray that all of the eyes of our hearts together, whether we be far or near from you, that our eyes would be drawn towards you, we would hear, and we would believe. Father, I pray that the power of doubt would be thrown far away from us, the pain of not receiving would be cast in its proper light and that we would be the people who are defined by the cross and the tomb, whose hearts are filled with love in response to the God who has loved us. Jesus, we love you far less than we should, and we thank you that it does not deter you, but you love us still. Let you be worshiped and glorified and honored in our own lives. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.